Hey guys, it's Matilda Pearl. We've lost too many lives on our roads this year through risks that weren't worth taking. So I've teamed up with the TAC and other artists to use live music as a way of highlighting that life without your mates is as quiet as music without a band. So take extra care out there and let's keep the band together. What's better than live music? Live music and a road trip. In this episode of Always Live, we're heading to central Victoria, where it's a gold rush of great gigs. We'll reveal how Nick Cave ended up playing in Ballarat. And he said, I'd love to come play Ballarat. We'll discover which beautiful old venue is haunted. One of the crew stayed the night in the theatre and got woken up in the middle of the night with the bath tap turned on full. And well, that's strange. There was no one else in the theatre. He turned it off, went to bed, he was a bit spooked, bath started up again. And that was it for him. He bolted. And we'll find out how an Eskimo jogi went horribly wrong. Look, this is the thing about music. It's like, if you want to write a song, then smoke a joint. If you want to do a performance, then have a beer. But don't mix the two up. But first, let's venture to Castlemaine an old gold mining town that has become the Northcote of the North, a thriving cultural community 120 kilometres from Melbourne. It's in Castlemaine that we catch up with this guy. I'm Jeremy Furs. I am an artist manager and also a publican, owner of the Bridge Hotel in Castlemaine, the centre of the universe. I'm also on the board at Main FM, the greatest little radio station in the nation. Jeremy, who also manages the Teskey Brothers, loved seeing gigs at the bridge, even before he started running the place. I've seen tons of gigs that we've held in the last four or five years. As the owner, you can never really tune out and truly bliss away. You're always looking at, you know, the glasses that need to be cleared in the corner of the room or wondering when the sound engineer is going to realise that the mids need a lift or whatever it is. But I do love watching gigs there and we've had you know, some incredible shows. I saw Rolling Blackouts play there before we owned it and it's probably still one of my favourite gigs I've seen at the bridge. It's probably 2016 maybe. Like they've been around for a while. I think I'd seen them at Cherry but they were called Rolling Blackouts at the time and they added Coastal Fever a bit later on. But when I saw them at the bridge... It was just like the bridge is a 100-capacity band room. It was a winter night. I remember just being freezing cold walking in, you know, up the street in Castlemaine. I didn't live there at the time and it was just super freaking cold and I was probably underdressed. Finally got in the pub doors and it was really warm in the pub and it's just that thing of a country pub when you step in and the fire's lit and it's packed and you're just like, oh, thank God this is a warm place and so no one wants to go out and you just, you know, you step out and have a cigarette and everyone's just freezing, shivering, can't wait to get back inside. So get in the band room and just had that real magic vibe of a, of a real sweaty, packed out room. Maybe the first time a whole lot of people had seen them because it was locals in the room and, and just everyone getting really hyped on their sound and what they were doing. 
such a great band that have always been real tight and always been really like energetic on stage, just moving around. They, they bop their heads, you know, they really bop that band and they definitely just like have the ability to go into a space like a new town, a regional show, no one's seen them. There's just like what's going on and then they'll just lock in and move and then you just watch as the rest of the room moves with them. And so I loved that gig and it's just kind of, Cool watching bands play in a room like that and then five years later you see where they've come and it's like they're just killing it around the world. So it's it's awesome. When it comes to great music venues, we often say, if only those walls could talk. Well, at the bridge, the posters tell the story. The previous owners, you know, there's, there's a few generations before us who did amazing job and, and they did actually an amazing job of keeping the posters and pasting them up on the walls as, you know, Old Bar used to do and lots of great venues used to keep posters and paste them up on the walls. And it's just such a great little, you know, walk down memory lane or walk through the the archive every time you walk up the hallway of the pub and, you know, seeing King Gears or whoever it is up there on the wall reminds you there's been so many awesome gigs there. The Bridge bounced back from COVID with an awesome run of shows by the one and only C.W. Stone King. C.W. Stone King played five shows in a weekend just coming out of COVID and it was such a fun weekend. Like he was just, he was in fine form. But when he announced the shows, he actually announced them as his last ever shows. And coming out of COVID, we were able to do shows a little bit sooner than Melbourne was because we were in regional and we had different rules. So we we put these shows up and they were kind of the first shows to go on sale in like, you know, in Victoria or some of the first shows to go on sale. And we put them up and he put it up as, right, that's it, I'm done, I'm out of music, these are going to be my last gigs. This is like three shows at the Bridge Hotel and then we added two more because they just... They sold out in an instant, you know, because obviously if they were going to be his last shows, that's like everyone had to be there. And then I had a great little chat to his manager, Dave, just after that, and he's like, I don't think they're going to be the last shows. <laughs> and sure, they certainly weren't his last shows, but it sure helped to sell them when he announced it like they were. What would CW do if not for music? I think CW was at the time thinking about moving into the shirt business. So he makes shirts, I believe, and he was enjoying that, I guess, during the pandemic and maybe just took a liking to manufacturing his own shirts. I'm not sure how how many he's made or how good they are, but, um, you know, if they're the ones he wears, they're, they're, he always looks quite nice, doesn't he? He's always wearing some nice shirts. Another recent gig at the bridge also remains etched in Jeremy's mind. Julia Jacqueline recently played at the bridge and that was just like stunning. She had the whole beer garden just in absolute silence. Any of the songs on Crushing, uh, like or both her albums are stunning, but like I just feel like there's some of those songs on Crushing that are just like they just absolutely slay you and you, and you kind of you, you just get lost in the lyrics and I feel like that sort of stuff just goes so well in like the beer garden summer thing when everyone just suddenly gets stuck on the lyrics and stops talking and just, you know, you can just feel people leaning forward, just completely absorbed in a show. As a gig gets bigger, 
there's no way you can have that. So there is a magic to a show that's just like 100 or 150 people. And talking to artists, you know, they know that. They know they'll make less money playing at a venue that's, you know, only got 150 people coming, but they love the fact that if they really capture the audience, as Gareth did, you know, when Gareth Lydiard played, he also was going hard on the storytelling in between songs and just being absolutely hilarious, but also just like his lyrics are just like haunting and yeah, visceral. And so you just get stuck on that stuff. And I love watching audiences get lost in that. There's also something really special about a regional gig. The banter you get at regional shows is different to city shows. And so I like, I think that's why a lot of people come out of Melbourne to seek out the regional show on the tour rather than just going to the Melbourne show. And, you know, I, I saw Wise Blood at the Theatre Royal in Castlemaine, another, you know, amazing, amazing venue in Castlemaine. It's got so much history and the people who run it are amazing and they've just done such a great job of booking some great stuff and keeping internationals come through, you know, bringing internationals to a small town like Castlemaine is is pretty amazing. And, yeah, I saw Wise Blood and, you know, she's up there doing her art rock stuff and it was just like such an incredible gig. But then, then you just get this like really, really random kind of heckles that come out. How was your day? Or something just like just really, really kind of regional. <laughs> I call that regional in inverted commas. And that like sort of relaxes the vibe and then, you know, you see the artists either, they either embrace it and they have fun or it just, you know, it can also go the other way and be really weird. As Jeremy mentioned, Castlemaine has not one, but two great venues, the Bridge Hotel and the Theatre Royal. The theatre opened during the gold rush way back in 1854, providing live entertainment for the thousands of people who had flocked to central Victoria, trying to find their fortune. This is the oldest continually operating theatre in Victoria. And the pizzas are pretty good too. The owners of the Theatre Royal are two musicians, Felicity Cripps and her husband Tim Heath. Tim is the guitarist in Gautier's band The Basics, while Felicity has been in a number of bands, including Juliette and another one called Hoy. So how did Felicity and Tim end up running the Theatre Royal? Tim grew up in Castlemaine. We've been in Melbourne for... Yeah, 15 or so years and um, decided really wanted to be in the country but still have the proximity to Melbourne because I didn't want to lose that connection. And Castlemaine just seemed like the greatest choice, being a really livable, wonderful community here and train right away from the city. And we were both just working odd jobs and still trying to do music, no money, um, still kind of... Oh, not aimless, but not really knowing what we were doing. And um, the Theatre Royal came on the market. We were with a couple of friends who were cinematographer and producer and knew that side of things. And we thought, why don't we have a go at crack at this like as a, as a group? And we didn't really think it was possible, but it, all of a sudden it was and it was ours. So we took it on and it was really hard. <laughs> And we have gone through some really challenging times. It's been a real roller coaster, but it's also been amazing. And nearly seven years later, we're still here. Felicity and Tim kick things off with Tim's band, The Basics. That it was a good draw card because Wally with Gautier was like a huge sensation. And um, he may have been on a trip back from New York and 
we really needed to make money because we had nothing and we're like, can you guys just do a gig? And we did it in the round. So they, instead of sitting on the stage, they were in the centre of the room and the audience were all around them. So it was a very, yeah, community-feeling song circle, if you will. And um, it was just magical. Like it was a really magical, beautiful, intimate show and it was absolutely packed. The Theatre Royal is a really special place for a band to play. A lot of people liken Theatre Royal to playing in Europe because it's got that sense of hospitality and the band sits together and has a beautiful meal before they play and there's a green room and accommodation and they're just really looked after and then it's just a great sounding room, it's a great place to play and, yeah, that's something we're really proud of. Felicity and Tim have had plenty of magic moments over the past seven years, including the night that American band Calexico played. That was like a dream gig. It was really hot, summery night. I made this cake. It was a dulce de leche cake and it was the guys who were on the brass instruments. I'd, I'd made this really amazing cake, kind of thinking, oh, these guys, because they're so into food, Calexico love food. But they said this dulce de leche cake was um, just like from home, but they were just like best best they'd ever had. So I felt like really proud of that. And we cooked them a beautiful meal because, yeah, they're just all about like fine wine, great food. And then they played this show and it was just like a, you really felt transported. It was just like a mega party, 500 people in the venue just going bananas. That was really, really great. Then there was the night that Amel and the Sniffers rocked the Royal. That was brilliant. That was like, felt like the first proper post-COVID like big show where shirts off, mosh pit, 500 people. I actually had to stand on stage and hold one of the big speakers because it was shaking so much because everyone was jumping up and down. And I was kind of on security control as well. Not my favourite position, but anyway. And I'm looking out to the crowd at this mosh pit, which doesn't often happen that much here. And then I saw the sea of faces and it was pure joy on everyone's face. And I realised, because the movement was kind of, I was getting a bit nervous, but it wasn't, nothing about it was aggressive. I realised they were all just so into it and the, the crowd were actually looking after each other. So it felt like a really, a safe mosh. It was really nice. Yeah, they're just a bloody great band. The Theatre Royal also has a ghost. And a member of Vicar and Linda's crew had a spooky encounter after they played there a few years ago. We did a gig there. I can't remember who it was with. It might have been with um, Ash Grunwald or someone like that. And the one of the crew stayed the night in the theatre and got woken up in the middle of the night with the bath tap turned on full and the bath was running. And he woke up. And he well, that's strange. There was no one else in the theatre. He turned it off, went to bed. It was a bit spooked. Bath started up again. And that was it for him. He bolted. It turns out that the Theatre Royal's ghost is a guy named Charlie. There was a story of, um, you know, Peter Sarsted, Where Do You Go To, My Lovely, that great song. He came and played in the late 80s. And he is also a medium. So he was out the back in the green room and he ended up telling Ray Lindstrom, former owner and friend of ours, he said, Ray, I've met Charlie. And Ray was like, what? 
It's like Charlie. I had a chat to Charlie. He's like, who, who Charlie? And he's like, Charlie, the ghost that lives here. And he's like, oh. And then straight away, it was like, Charlie, yeah, that was an Indigenous fella who used to do this trick where he would ride his horse off the balcony of the Theatre Royal, jump off the balcony, and it was like this performance he would do. And he did it one day after a skinful and botched the jump. <laughs> and the horse fell on top of him and um, he was killed. And apparently his ghost is still here at the Theatre Royal. And Peter Sass said and Charlie had a chat and Charlie was telling him that Ray's a great operator but he drinks too much. And Ray was like, yep, yeah, you're on the money, it's true. I can't remember what else happened, but I think there were a few interactions with um with Ray and Charlie. And yeah, there's some there's some good ghost stories. Has Felicity had any supernatural encounters at the venue? Early days when I was in the theater, I was by myself, which I would actually try to avoid, especially in the beginning, because I would get really I'd get really scared, especially if it was late at night. But this actually happened in the morning and I was walking through the main band room and there was just this almighty kerfuffle on stage and I looked, I thought maybe there was, I don't know, a possum or something like because I knew there was no one else in the building and there was nothing on the stage but there was all this like like running around and um, banging and scraping and it sounded very much like a set change. It was like chairs scraping, moving sets, lots of footsteps and then it just stopped. I was just standing in the middle of the room freaking out and then I just like said, I'm, I'm here, I'm really trying to look after the Theatre Royal, I'm here to do good and I hope you're okay with that. And, um, and then I walked down to the sunshine, took a deep breath and I was like, I really feel like I just interrupted a bit of theatre. That's, that's how it sounded to me. There's been nothing scary since. So Felicity hopes that Charlie is happy with what she and Tim are doing with the place. I feel like they're pretty cool with what's going on now, so that's good. Yeah. If you're planning a big night out, leave the car at home. If you can, use public transport, catch a taxi, rideshare, or organise a designated driver. Let's all get home safely and keep the band together. Felicity and Tim are definitely hands-on proprietors. Tim and I will do everything from pouring drinks, stretching pizza bases, doing the fold back on stage, mopping the floor, cleaning the urinal, putting out the bins, like everything, rostering, managing. And you get people in to help, but at the end of the day, you're you're, you're kind of the, the backstop and the slushy for everyone. But Felicity still gets to play the occasional gig. I got to support Rob Snarsky and Lindy Morrison last Friday night, which was just such a dream. And then sang with them on stage. It was such a great night. And Lindy, she just spoke about the venue and the gig like she was the luckiest person on earth. I can't believe we get to play here. I can't believe my name's up there on the marquee. Oh, I've got to get a photo. I was just like, we're like in one of the biggest Australian bands known to the world and you talk about this gig like it's the it's the best thing ever like it was such a so humbling and amazing like yeah it's really cool so people do love it even people who've been around the traps played everywhere still really love it here and what's not to love about this beautiful old building 
Artists are queuing up to play at the Royal. But if any of them need convincing, this is what Felicity tells them. For a touring artist who we really want to bring here, we obviously try and figure out a a way we can make an attractive guarantee. But more than that, the pitch is come to the Theatre Royal, we'll put you up, have a night or two in the country, we'll feed you great food, local beautiful wine, go out to the golf club and see the kangaroos, like, you know, if they're American or European or want to, you know, see something like come and see a bit of regional rural Australia and have a great time. That's a real draw card for a lot of people. And you get to play in a great sounding room. Exactly. Yeah, honestly, it's just such a beautiful room. And um, we're so lucky we've got Mark Woods. He's our in-house technician and he was Tina Turner's sound tech and did world tours with her, with men at work, with all kinds of, yeah, midnight oil. He's he's done everything and now he's got his little farm out near Maryborough and Theatre Royals is a regular gig and we're just so lucky to have a team with people like Mark on it. It's the same with our, our lighting technician and production manager, Jim. He's done Glastonbury Festival. He's festivals in Japan, all over the world. And again, yeah, he's chosen life in Settle Down in Castlemaine. And just like Mark, they're just so deeply passionate about music and the industry and, yeah, comes to Theatre Royal on a weekly basis and makes magic happen. The Theatre Royal has won Best Regional Venue at the Music Victoria Awards six times. Music manager Michael Parisi is always rapt when one of his artists is booked to play there. It's a beautiful theatre in Castlemaine. It's stunning, really old school, probably turn of the century, leaning more towards Art Deco, but just a good vibe. You can, you know, just had a great soul. You know, when you walk into a room and you can sense that, you know, there's a soul in the room, you know? You don't get that when you go to a place like Rod Laver. Billy Bragg, Paul Kelly, Mick Thomas, Camp Cope and Thelma Plum have all played at the Theatre Royal, as have the great Melbourne rock band British India. Here's Matty O'Gorman. Yeah, we've done that gig once. That was really fun. Did that on my birthday, actually. Like, it's quite rare and you get that real country feel town and it's like an old school theatre. It's magic. You kind of don't feel like you're you don't really feel like you're anywhere. It's just like it's something like out of a, it's like a glitch. You almost feel like you're interstate, you know. It's just one of those cool, magical small towns. Actually, no, last time we were there, I think the drummer from Hunters and Collectors had like a a food stand at like this face we were at, which is really bizarre. But we just did a day on the green with them. So we are just like, there's a drummer from Hunters and Collectors and he's got like a marmalade stand. So that's our memory of that venue, Castle Maine. Felicity's dream is for Nick Cave to grace the Theatre Royal stage. And she's got a close family connection. Nick's older brother, Tim, is a regular at the Royal. And when Always Live booked Nick and Warren Ellis for a big gig at nearby Hanging Rock, maybe they could pop in for a little sideshow. I feel like we, we got close. Like, I was, can't we just get, like, an intimate show? And I even had, um, so Nick's brother, Tim Cave, is a... Um, a loyal royal member here at the Theatre Royal, comes to the films all the time, came to a gig the other night, we were chatting the other day and he's like, just so you know, Felicity, I did suggest to Nick. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, what, what kind of capacity? And when it was, heard it was 500, he was like, oh, yeah, I was, I was thinking intimate, more like, yeah, a few thousand. So we're, we're still a little bit small. <laughs> Hopefully one day it'll happen. Band booker Sean Adams had a similar dream of getting Nick to play in Ballarat. 
And that dream came true. Warren Ellis comes from Ballarat. So probably when I opened Coroba Lounge, I had a list. It's like, here's the things I want to achieve with this venue. And it was really about, I wanted everything to be considered as much as possible. So when you kind of pitch something, you go, oh, I really want this to feel like it means something, not just, it's not just a thing. It's not based around money. It's just about a certain energy. So it was always my dream to have the Dirty Three play Corova Lounge. And um, the connection with Warren Ellis coming from Ballarat, his family still lived in Ballarat. So I got really close one time. They were doing a small little kind of venue tour. They were playing Castle Maine and maybe somewhere else. And I got really close, but I just kind of missed out. Like it was just timing. And so that was kind of like, I was really bummed at the time because I thought maybe it was being considered or something like that. You kind of forget about these things sometimes and then other opportunities kind of come up and then I met up with Warren by chance at Sugar Mountain Festival. And I actually just was chatting to him and went, oh, hey, so, you know, from Ballarat or on this venue, you know, all that stuff. And, you know, there's a bottom line. I'm kind of going, oh, he is not going to care about this, you know. But yeah, he was really gracious in just hearing me out. This all ties back to this legendary Dirty Three Meredith performance as well, which once again, just this iconic kind of, if you talk about most iconic performances at, Meredith, then you can't really go past that show. And he said, I would love to come play Ballarat. And he's never really played Ballarat before in his career outside when he was in high school. But I'm going to be on the road with Nick Cave for the next three years or whatever it was going to be. And I said, ah, bummer. Okay, cool. No worries. And then kind of one thing led to another that all of a sudden I'm in conversations with the Ballarat, like the promoter for Nick Cave about bringing Nick Cave to Ballarat. And it was all based around trying to bring the Dirty Three to Ballarat. So, you know, there was a line ball whether it was going to happen or not. Like there's a lot of kind of energy going into kind of securing them to come and it was going to be an outdoor gig and all that kind of stuff. So in the end it happened, which was just incredible and probably still one of the probably top three moments of my career to, to do that. It was a very emotional show for many reasons. You know, Nick Cave had just gone through a a pretty tragic thing with the death of his son, new album that had a lot of issues dealing with that. So, you know, there was a lot of kind of emotional things kind of happening. And in the end, you know, we were fighting off other promoters because they were trying, they knew Nick was touring and they wanted shows and probably I was offering the less kind of thing outside just the connection, you know. So people were offering big money and doing this for them and doing that for them and I just were going, hey, I just want to bring you to Ballarat. You know, that was my pitch, really. It, and that was all it was. So I'm kind of pretty stoked that there was people that believed in that and not kind of worrying about how much money they were going to make. But this idea of Warren performing in his hometown and, and you know, Nick obviously doing something unusual as well. And, you know, I don't even think Nick had played in Ballarat before. So, and he, you know, he came from Warwickmobile, you know, so he, it's not too far away. So, and it's probably the closest they've ever come to playing anywhere near their hometowns where they grew up. The Ballarat Courier called it the coolest event in Ballarat for years. During the show, Nick told the crowd about taking Warren Ellis to his favourite fish and chip shop the night before. There was quite the backstory to this, as Sean Adams reveals. Two or three days in, you know, it's all pretty crazy. Motel rooms, getting bad seats looked after, Nick getting good accommodation and making sure everyone feels really comfortable. And, 
you know, Nick is a world-class act. So, you know, he has a traveling road crew that, you know, follows everywhere around and it was a big production and we had, you know, the hugest PA that's probably ever been in in, in, um, in Ballarat before and it was an open-air concert. So, you know, we were pretty much in the thick of it three or four days in, but I'd organized this fancy dinner for Nick and the Bad Seeds. I was actually going to close down this kind of little restaurant. So they had a private thing, cool music, really great, fine um, dining kind of experience on they arrived on a Saturday, so there the night before. So it was really going to be like this really private thing. They're all together. The owner was a massive Nick Cave fan. So a lot of people locally were doing me little favours. And then about 24 hours out from this fancy dinner, I just got an email from the tour manager or something and saying, yeah, we're not doing the dinner. <laughs> and anyway, and that's kind of like, that's tough pill to swallow when you've just put all this effort in and, and you're the local guy too so even if these people walk away you know I'm still the guy they see down the street you know and going, oh yeah remember you're going to just put Nick Cave in our restaurant and you know and all this kind of stuff and yeah we had a lot of people doing us favors of doing meals for crew and different things but lo and behold the next day I actually met Nick Cave and during his sound check or, you know, he just arrived early. So we were still kind of panicking, setting things up, fencing and all that kind of stuff. And then um, happened to tell me that, you know, he just toured around in a car with Warren Ellis going to all his childhood places. And they ended up eating at this fish and chip shop, which was Warren's favorite fish and chip shop, like when he grew up, you know. So it was kind of like, yeah, it was I actually kind of love it and he did mention it on stage after during the show and everyone loving it as well and it definitely made me feel great because that was what it was about anyway. It was about community and it was about Warren being home and seeing his folks and seeing cousins of cousins and people that all of a sudden were saying his cousins even though they probably weren't, you know, because who knows, you know. And I had a lot of that as well. It was like, oh, yeah, I'm related to Warren and can I get backstage and all that kind of stuff. Sean made a name for himself as a booker at the Corova Lounge in Ballarat, which won Best Regional Venue at the Music Victoria Awards in 2018. Here's Sean to give us a bit of the Corova history. So Corova started in 2004, opened up by a really good friend of mine, Paddy O'Driscoll, and um, I guess that was born out of just kind of some of the ashes of a famous venue called the Bridge Mall Inn, which is where was essentially the first really live music venue I'd been in. And there was just a really great community focus there, local bands that wouldn't be big anywhere else. But, you know, in Ballarat, you know, we had our own little kind of pockets of bigness, you know, when a certain band played, then it would be as big as anything else you would see in Melbourne. So it it started just for a need to have a live music venue there. Didn't really know what we're doing or, but we just knew we had a local community that would probably help support it. And luckily it lasted for 15 odd years and and created a lot of really great memories and led me to do other things within the industry as well, because, you know, you just kind of came off the success of it. Ballarat bands such as Epicure, Neon Love, Hunting Grounds, Yacht Club DJs and Goldfields started at the Corova and got a national profile. Yacht Club DJs even toured the world with Mumford & Sons. I ended up managing Yacht Club DJs and to work with that actor that then got to play Meredith three times and all these kind of things you just wouldn't even think about when you start this journey of just being a booker and, and all that stuff. And that got to a point where, you know, we played a show with Mumford & Sons at a little festival and then Mumford & Sons took them around the world. So 
I don't know. They just loved them having fun, you know. Like Mumford and Sons are some of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. And we played this festival called Gentlemen of the Road, which is kind of like Mumford's own festival. And basically we played that show. And in the end, like Marcus Mumford was drumming to Yacht Club. You look at it and you go, Mumford and Sons and Yacht Club DJs, how does that, how that work? And in the end, you go, these guys actually just loved good times and and partying in a way. And so it just, you know, it, it was wild. And in, in the end, you know, Mumford took them to Europe and in the US playing really remote locations. And the big thing is I'm bummed I didn't go because, you know, in hindsight, I was going, oh, no, this will kind of happen again, but it never does. But um, at the time, you know, that was just a really big deal for Ballarat as well. Like it all just kind of kept feeding into Ballarat and Goldfield started getting a lot of attention and playing in the US and playing really big shows. And we were really lucky that all the bands kind of wanted to talk about Ballarat and wanted to talk about Corova Lounge as well, which was really super exciting. And you couldn't plan it, you know, it just happened in its own way and just kind of to be involved or play some small part and all that. I wouldn't be where I was without those kind of cornerstones happening. Sean brought some big bands to the Corova Lounge, including Magic Dirt, Augie March and Something for Kate. Then there was that night UMI played, supported by Tame Impala, and American DJ Girl Talk was the hottest ticket in town, literally. Sold out in 10 minutes. It's still, it was the fastest selling show it ever did. And that moment was incredible because all of a sudden just people were reaching out to me to kind of go, it actually just put Corova on the map on a more national scale. The show happened, so it's in summer. And it happened to be one of those really hot days in Ballarat. And Crowe Lounge was based kind of underground. And it was a sauna, like even before the show had started. So the fact that people were sweating, even just walking in there, it was pretty wild. And then you've seen a girl talk show, you know, people jump on stage. You know, that kind of happened five minutes into the show. You know, Crowe was a pretty small venue. So you kind of felt like half or most of the venue was actually on the stage for the, for the moment. And we had a security guard each side and the table broke because of the pressure of people kind of being on it and stuff. And so we actually had two security guards on either side holding the table up for pretty much the whole entire show to kind of make it work outside it being a sweat pit. And even now, like um, Girl Talk, whose name is Greg. We got some quotes from him for maybe the 15th anniversary of Corova or something, and he still says that was the hottest gig that he's ever done, and he, you know, felt like fainting the whole time. So, you know, it was a pretty wild moment and, and quite surreal, to be honest, like even talking about it. It definitely kind of felt like if we were kind of like this little hidden gem in regional Vic, that kind of exposed us to a, a larger audience and promoters and bands wanting to come and play. But not every gig at the Corova was a roaring success. You know, the most famous story is actually when presets played, no book presets, and 12 people rocked up, 12 payers. And probably within the next six to seven months, they were the biggest band in the country. I just booked them at the wrong time. So 
the myth around Ballarat now is people saying they were there when they weren't there. So it's actually been this kind of this um, little thing of, uh, yeah, I was there for the pre-show. You know, mate, there's only 12 players there. And, you know, and four of those people went out the back to play pool. So, you know, it's, um, yeah. So those kind of things are the great kind of things about when you run a venue in regional Victoria because you never really know what you're going to get. And it is all a matter of timing, you know, with a lot of this stuff that, you know, if I had just booked that band a little bit later, then that would have been a sold-out show. After 15 years of great gigs, the Corova Lounge closed its doors in 2019. But occupying the old Corova space is a cool new venue called Volta. Another Ballarat favourite is the Eastern, which the old Epicure singer Joanne Alban sees as the spiritual successor to the Bridgemall Inn, looking after the local music community. Ballarat has certainly hosted some great gigs over the years, but an early show by Fremantle's Eskimo Joe might not be one of them. Here's singer Cav Tempoli to give us the gory details. Look, this is the thing about music. is like if you want to write a song, then smoke a joint. If you want to do a performance, then have a beer, but don't mix the two up. If you have a beer before you write a song, it's it's okay. But it, And if you have a joint before you do a performance, it's terrible. So we we got to this venue and there was no one had bought tickets. And so me and Joel, I, don't, I think we didn't even tell Stu. We were like, oh, let's get stoned before we go on stage. We were 19 at the time. So we like, you know, smoked a little joint or whatever. And then we got on stage and as soon as we got on stage, we were like, this was a terrible idea because <laughs> we were just trying to get through this performance and and the two worlds do not marry each other very, very well. So we were on stage and there was like two people in the audience like having a terrible time and Stu was just looking at us like with this look of absolute fury on his face like, what did you do? Um, but we learned after that that, yeah, don't ever do that and we never did that again. A good lesson for every young artist out there. Another band that went on to big things made their Ballarat debut on a quiet Thursday night. We had a thing at Crover when we first started. It was um, a $5 night on Thursdays and we would just book bands. Just to, It's like a groundbreaking kind of night. And there was this one time we booked a band and the owner, Paddy, he, he sent me a text going, oh, you should really come in. And I didn't go to all the shows. He said, you should come and check this one out. Like they're rolling in a heap of amps and... Yeah, I don't know, there's something going on here. And, you know, and I was like, oh, yeah, it's just some band from Warnable. It would be fine and, and whatever else. And he goes, no, 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 you really should come down. I just heard the sound check. So I went, all right, I'll come down and check it out. And, you know, there wasn't many people there. But little did I know that a band with about eight Marshall stacks on, on the a very small stage of Crowe Lounge was belting it out and um, who happened to be the band Airborne, you look at that moment back then and you go, they walked away with maybe 50 bucks. And, you know, they've travelled all the way from Warrnambool to Ballarat. But what I love about that is they've never changed. And even though they maybe have disappeared from our conscious in Australia or overseas, they're absolutely incredible. But still, to that moment, I think it might have been one of their first shows I've even played outside Warrnambool that I booked. That still spins me out. All these stories spin me out too, but I guess everyone's got to start somewhere. Who knows who's playing at your local tonight? So what are you even doing listening to this podcast? Get out and see some live music. As well as the Theatre Royal and the Bridge Hotel in Castlemaine, Bendigo has the Golden Vine Hotel and a world-class theatre at the Old Sandhurst Jail, 
which was built in 1863. The Alumbra Theatre opened in 2015 and holds nearly 1,000 people. You can even do a tour of Cell 26 before the show. For a performer, there's nothing quite like a captive audience. Next time on Always Live, we're checking out all the great music festivals across Victoria, including this strange story. Everyone started doing something funny with their shoes. They were holding their shoes up or doing something funny with their shoes when we were playing. I was a bit kind of scared when I saw it. The legend of the Meredith boot and a whole lot more. That's next time on Always Live. This episode of Always Live was written and researched by Luke Wallace, Mikey Carl, and Jeff Jenkins. Audio production by Ben Oakley. Produced by Dave Carter on behalf of Media Heads. If you dug this podcast, feel free to share it, write a review, and subscribe to the series on your favourite podcast app. Sharing is caring. And if you want info on some awesome live gigs coming soon to Victorian stages, follow Always Live on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or visit the website, alwayslive.com.au. I'm Alex Leahy. Catch you at the next gig. Hey guys, it's Matilda Pearl. I couldn't do what I do without my band by my side, so don't do life without your mates by yours. Take care on the roads this summer, look out for each other, and most importantly, let's keep the band together.